Hi, I'm Una Chaplin, and I'm the host of a new podcast called Hollywood Exiles. It tells the story of how my grandfather, Charlie Chaplin, and many others were caught up in a campaign to root out communism in Hollywood. It's a story of glamour and scandal and political intrigue and a battle for the soul of a nation. Hollywood Exiles from CBC Podcasts and the BBC World Service. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. I tell you this, when you're interviewing Mick Jagger in London, England, you are acutely aware that you are only about a 45-minute drive from where it all began, from where Mick and Keith Richards were kids on a train platform trading blues records, and like that moment would create the Rolling Stones. So in our conversation, we talk about some of those early days, but also about Mick's desire that the band never be retro, never be stuck in the past, and his commitment to making sure they're always the biggest band in the world, a rare Canadian exclusive interview with Mick Jagger coming up. I'm Tom Power. You are listening to Q. I saw her today at the reception. A glass of wine in her hand. I knew she was going to meet her connection. At her feet was a footloose man You can't always get what you want You can't From 1969, that's the Rolling Stones, and you can't always get what you want. Today on Q, you are going to hear my conversation with the leader of the Rolling Stones, Mick Jagger. You might find I'll be honest with you, I don't really know what to say right now. I mean, this is a guy whose career spans over 60 years. He's won pretty much every award possible. He's one of the most recognizable voices in music history, one of the most recognizable people in the world. He's technically Sir Mick Jagger. But more important than any of those accolades, I mean, a lot of people have had the best nights of their lives listening to the Rolling Stones. And you would have thought, you would have been forgiven for thinking that after all these years, maybe there wouldn't be a new Rolling Stones record ever again. I mean, after all, Mick Jagger's 81, Keith Richards is 79. You might think they'd stay on the road, but like, more music? So as you might have heard, for the first time in 18 years, the Rolling Stones have a brand new album. It's called Hackney Diamonds. It is no retro album. It is urgent. It is contemporary. It is new. And I was a little extra on edge because this is the first new Rolling Stones album since the death of their drummer, Charlie Watts. And when we talked about that, I think you really hear Mick not as this like global rock star, but as a friend, as a bandmate. Anyway, I'll say more about that later, but here it is, our Canadian exclusive interview from London, England with Mick Jagger. Mick Jagger. Tom. How are you? Good. <laughs> Thanks for being here, man. This is cool. Pleasure. Pleasure to be here. I love the new record. Thank you. How are you feeling? How are you feeling putting this thing out? Well, good. I mean, 
it's quite a long time since we finished it now because uh, we finished. I finished mixing in um, beginning of March, so you know I was very up there. <laughs> I was really up, and then I've had to sort of put it on the back burner because it takes so long to make the vinyl. Yeah. And um, but yeah, I'm very excited about it. So back into being listen to it again and stuff. And uh, yeah, made pretty quickly. Yeah. Yeah. Just like like about three four weeks most of it and then i mixed it remotely with andy and the mixer yeah. sorbon that was fun we were three locations i was in the caribbean andy was in la Sorbonne was in uh Sorbonne was in um north carolina Jeez. so yeah well that's we uh, that's how you do it but we i've done that before but if you have fast internet you can do that so you're all live you're mixing live she's very different than how it used to be making records you know like, I heard someone talk about Django Reinhardt's record one time, and they yeah. said, back then, making a record was like going to the moon or something like that. You know? And now you can do it over the, the internet, for God's sake. Yeah, yeah, but I mean, in a way, we made the record just like Django Reinhardt made his record. In a way, we were, this record was made all in the room with the musicians in the room. Uh, you know, so we're all in the room, Ronnie and me, um, Keith and Steve, Matt Clifford, just blasting it out, and, you know, and afterwards you... You go through the takes and say, oh, this is a good take. This is a good, oh, I'll leave that one. And then, then you work on your overdubs. And that's pretty much, you know, how you make a rock record. I was going to say, I mean, there's not a lot of records made like that anymore. Was that I, well, I think that most indie bands make records like that. That's, yeah. ha that's how you make... But, I mean, what's, what's easier is, um, is the, um, after you've chosen the takes and doing the overdubs and everything, and the editing and stuff is just so much easier now than it used to be. Yeah, there's no tape. There's no tape. Well, it hasn't been taped for ages, yeah. not for 25 years. Yeah. We haven't used tape. We used tape, actually, on this album. We used tape for Rolling Stone Blues. Oh, we recorded that on tape. For fun? Or just, just for fun, kind of a girl vibe, you know. Yeah. Uh, it's just Keith and me, so we recorded it on um, 24-track tape. Oh, it's sort of like a harken back to the old days kind of thing. Yeah. Oh, that's lovely. Yeah. Any, uh, at this stage, I mean, this far into it, any nerves putting out a record? Well, you always, um, I mean, I think you say, you know that it's, that you like it, you know, that's the first stage and you, you like it. Um, and, and you play it to people, you play it to friends, and you play it to colleagues and so on, and you get a vibe of that they that, that they seem to be liking it. But you never know when when people when you come out with something, you never know the mood can be down on you maybe for some reason. Yeah. But, but I mean, I think it's been pretty positive reaction so far. We only heard people have only heard angry, but um, it seems to be pretty positive so far. Angry is a great song. Thank you. How did that one come together now? Um. I was in the Caribbean, I was just um, on my own and I just started playing it, just that riff. It had in my head before I was playing it on the guitar and then uh, and then I was playing it to a drum machine, you know? Yeah. And then 
So it's just a real simple beat. You boom, bah, you know, it's just almost the same beat as, as what we've got. Though Steve plays it obviously more interesting yeah, than the machine. Than the machine. Yeah, 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 right, but, right. but it was it's the same idea, and uh, and then you know brought it to the you know Keith and I went to Jamaica with Steve and Matt, and and we ran through and Keith said, oh I love it, and he, and he put his own thing on it. You know, yeah. that was one really easy to come together. You know, and those ones sometimes feel really good that you know when they come together that quickly yeah. and everyone falls in on their parts. Yeah. Don't get angry. And then I had to work on the vocals and how to make it more exciting as it goes on, you know, to change the vocal lines and stuff. But yeah. It's a good one. I love I loved seeing you. I, I love that it's a Jagger Richards. I loved seeing you two on stage together because I've been doing research on for this interview for, I'll say, a month. Okay. Like, <laughs> it was long. Yeah, like reading books and reading articles and yeah. reading interviews all the way back to like 62 up till now. And it's funny to see the Keith thing come up over and over again. You get asked it in like 65. Yeah, you yeah, get asked yeah. it in like 71. Yeah, yeah. You get asked it in like 83. Yeah. You give a different answer every single yeah, time. And seeing you and him on stage yesterday at the press conference, just your arms around each other was so so beautiful to me. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like where, where are you now writing songs together and, and all that? Uh, I mean, it's so different now. I mean, because we used to be, we used to live in the same apartment you know, when yeah. we started off. Um, writing songs together and so we'd be uh, I wouldn't even play guitar half the time here I'd just be writing the top lines for Keith's chord sequences and you know and he would sometimes suggest melodies and I would come up with all the words, and but you know this, that's a long time ago, and things evolve and change, and you know, um, you know, I like to I like to write songs on my own. You know, I don't live in the same continent as Keith. He doesn't do Zoom, so I can't write on Zoom with him. You know, yeah. So, but still, when we got together in Jamaica and started jamming these things around, that was like you know, it's the same as we always have been. You know, so it falls back into that thing where you know you get a bit, you know, what about this bit, you know. What do you think about this chorus? Should it go here? Should it go there? Or, you know, like in Whole Wide World, for instance, um, he kind of sh he shortened the verse that I'd written. So instead of playing like four bars on every chord, he he made it into two bars on every chord, which made it more kind of funky. Yeah. You know? So yeah. So it, it, it's um, yeah. So it's a it's a kind of interesting partnership but you know um andy also helped me a lot with the, you know writing you know helps me by you know telling me oh you know this you could do that better you know that still that, he'll still do that to you or, or andy what i'm talking about yeah oh andy you know yeah. it's so i listen to what outside people tell me you know I'm, I'm not like so kind of like entrenched that if 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 andy said to me oh those words are great maybe you could do a lot better i just go back and rewrite them i'd be terrified to say it to, you, to be honest he's not terrified to say it to me. Okay, <laughs> i wouldn't want to be tasked with it to be honest no, but go it, in and tell him no, yeah no but know? that's what's fun about working with people without i don't mind if you know if, 
if Keith says to me that that could be better, I'll make it better. If Andy Watts says it could be better, I'll try. Right. If I disagree with them, I'll tell them I disagree with them. Right. Okay, yeah. I'll do it. Yeah, you know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I love the McCartney was on this record too. Yeah. He plays he plays bass on a, a track on the record. Yeah, yeah, he does. How did that happen? Um, well, uh, Paul was in LA when we were recording, and he was supposed to work with Andy one week, and Andy had said, "Look, I'm working on this record for." If it takes six months, I'm, I'm going to do nothing else. And then he says, and suddenly we get to this one week, he said, I forgot to tell you I was supposed to work with Paul this week. So we said, we worked out the schedule. And so, so he said, when we get Paul to come in and play on something? So um, so I said, on what? You know, what is what? I've never played bass with Paul. Yeah. I've sung with him, but I haven't played bass. So I don't know what he's going to play. And we, we suggested he play on this sort of punk tune, you know. Yeah. So and I didn't know how it was going to work out, but it he really rocked it and he loved doing it. You know, he said, oh, it's great playing with a band." You know, he says, "Really enjoyable playing with a band." So was we, he in the room with you? Was it? Yeah, all, it was yeah. all in the room. We're all in the room playing together. So there's you and Keith. And yeah, I'm playing. I'm playing guitar. Keith's playing guitar. And Paul McCartney's playing Paul, bass. Paul's playing bass. Ronnie's playing guitar. You understand that that feels meaningful to me. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, I understand it's a session and yeah. musicians playing together. Yeah. You understand that historically yeah. that feels meaningful yeah. that you yeah, guys yeah. played together, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it does. I mean, it is, and it's fun, but it seemed so natural, you know? It didn't seem, and Paul was so natural and, and relaxed and, and he enjoyed it and we, we knocked it out really quick. Did you guys have a good relationship going through this whole thing? Uh, who, who? You and Paul. Going through what thing? Well, your your lives, your well, whole life. But Jesus, Mick, you know what I mean, right? Like, I think if you look at like, because again, I'm doing crazy amounts of research here. And again, if you want to talk about how much Keith comes up, the Beatles come up a lot, yeah. right? You know? Yeah. And I find that a lot of what got written about in say like 70s and 80s, uh, I guess up until the early 80s, was you and John. Yeah. Well, John was a great friend, close friend of mine. Yeah. And, you know, he was very acerbic and funny and witty and intelligent and everything. And But I also knew Paul, who's a different kind of personality, you know, I've always been friends with him, and um, we don't see each other that much, but we do sort of text each other, and you know, and um, so we sort of keep in touch. So, I mean, I've always got on well with him, and uh, and Ronnie and Paul also see each other quite a lot, you know. So we we have this sort of communication. Um, nice to hear Stevie Wonder on the record. Yeah, on he's on Sweet Sound of Heaven, and he opened up for you guys. Yes, we talked about that when he came to the studio. <laughs> he said, I haven't really played with you guys since we played on tour. And we played, um, we played uh, a medley of Satisfaction and Uptight. Da, da. It's the oh, same beat. Da, 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 da. Yeah, I can hear it. It's man. the same beat. Yeah, yeah, I can hear it's it. It's the same beat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's the same beat. It's that beat. Da, 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 da. So, um, <laughs> yeah. So we talked about that, and it was very funny. What do you remember about those tours with him opening up for you? Well, a lot. I mean, it was a great tour. We had, I think, we had Stevie, we had Ike and Tina Turner, we had BB King. That was an amazing lineup. Yeah. <laughs> on a tour. Yeah. On an arena tour. Yeah. And um, yeah, it was, it was amazing. She would never say where she came from 
I'm Tom Power. You're listening to Q. I'm talking to Mick Jagger about the first new Rolling Stones album in 18 years. It's called Hackney Diamonds. This is an important record and a meaningful record to Mick, not just because it's the first album of original music in in 18 years, not just because people were wondering whether they'd ever make an album again, but because this is the first album that the Rolling Stones made without their longtime drummer, Charlie Watts. Charlie Watts died in 2021. And when I sat down with Mick Jagger, it's very clear that this is not somebody who's a rock icon mourning another rock icon. This is a guy from England who's had a remarkable life mourning the loss of his buddy, of his longtime friend and his collaborator. And that's where things pick up. Here's more of my conversation with Mick Jagger. She just can't be to a life where I've sort of been trying to figure out how to talk to you about this part. Is and only not because it's uh, controversial, but only because it's a bit emotional, to be honest, with with Charlie uh, on the record. I was so yeah. happy when I looked at the track listing, yeah, and I saw that that Charlie plays on this record. Yeah. So these are older Charlie. Uh, Twenty nineteen. It's not that long ago. No. Over the last five years, we've done quite a lot of recording with Don Was, but we, it had been a bit sporadic, and we hadn't really finished any. There's a lot of unfinished material, you know, and, and um, songs that hadn't been done. Anyway. So when we were putting this together, we said, well, which ones do we like? You know, which ones do we think that will fit on this record that Charlie's on, and we finished those. And so we put these two, these two tracks we picked for Char- with Charlie on. I mean, I, I love both there. I, I mean, I love both the tracks. I didn't just pick them because Charlie's on them. Kind yeah. of, you know what I mean? Yeah. I would have. Yeah. But they're, they're both, um, you know, contenders for this record, you know. Yeah. What was he like? Charlie? Yeah. Well, that's really a hard question. I mean, I'm, I, knew, I knew him since I was 19, you know. And I hang out a lot with Charlie. He was like one of my sort of close friends. And we had, a, Charlie and I had a lot of interests outside of, just playing a band, you know, and well, we, we used to, we loved sport, you know, football and cricket. Charlie and I used to go to cricket together a lot. Um, we would talk about football, he's a big Tottenham fan, I'm an Arsenal fan, it's like a big competition. Um, Charlie's very knowledgeable about that, he used to play football when he was a kid, pretty good, much better than me. And, um, and, uh, and Charlie and I liked all kinds of different music, you know, so, Charlie, you know, everyone says, oh, Charlie, Charlie always loved jazz. Well, he did love jazz, you know, he, he really loved jazz and he introduced me all kinds of I used to love jazz too. When I was a teenager, I, I was a real jazz fan. And, and so I knew quite a lot about jazz, not like him, but, you know, that jazz was the hip thing to like. You yeah, know? kind of pre-bop, right? But when yeah, it was, yeah, when it yeah. was sort of well, more accessible. Kind well, of. yeah, and, but I liked, you know, I liked post-war jazz. You know, yeah. I used to like Jerry Mulligan's sound and, you know, I used to, Listen to all that kind of stuff, Sonny Rollins, you yeah, know, cool. who played on one of our records. Yeah, he sure did. I was, you know, so I like that kind of music. Um, you know, a lot of it I didn't like, you know, but, you know, I liked the Cannibal Adderley. I loved Charlie and I used to go and see Cannibal Adderley. Oh, cool. Um, I remember Charlie and I once going to see him at the Apollo, and we would we, we would really go and, you know, Charlie and I would go and we'd go, oh, Cannibal Adderley, we'd go and see him in a club or in a theatre, you know, and... Um, 
So Charlie and I had a lot of those kind of interests, and we also liked. Um, Charlie loved, you know, beautiful objects. You know, he liked antiques. He liked furniture. So we talked a lot about things like that. You know, so we had a lot of interests in common apart from just being a band. You know, but I um, mean, Charlie liked all kinds of music. He he liked African music, like me. He liked reggae music before everyone had even heard it. Yeah, or, before before Bob Marley, Charlie and I were listening to reggae music before it was like mainstream. Yeah, you know? um, so. Yeah, so we 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 would be have a lot in common with that stuff. The reason I'm interested in it, I suppose, is because to to the world, Charlie, Charlie of the Rolling Stones died, and how does the Rolling Stones go on and all that kind yeah. of stuff? But I thought, my Jesus, like, a you lost your buddy, yeah, and you lost a buddy who's around your age, yeah, exactly. How was that for you? Well, it's, it's very difficult to lose friends. You know, um, as you get older, you lose a lot of friends. And not only friends, you, you, it's very weird because you not, okay, they're not friends of yours necessarily, but they're people that have been in your life, whether they're musicians or, you know, that you've admired or actors or wherever, you know, whatever they are, but lots of people of your age group yeah. or, or generation, you might say, have all gone. And then, but, um, um, which is why I think I've got a lot of friends that aren't in my age group. <laughs> <laughs> they stick around a bit longer. <laughs> they were, yeah. were younger people, you know. I mean, I don't want to just hang out with younger people, but, I mean, yeah. a lot of the people of my generation are no longer here to hang out yeah, with, so what am I going to do? Yeah. So, uh, yes, it's a, lot, it's a big loss when you meet someone, you know, for like 60 years, you know, and work with. It's a huge loss. I'm not Dr. Phil, but is it scary to lose someone so close to you? Are you someone your age who's close to you and you've been up through the whole thing with? Yeah. It, I don't know if it's scary. It's very sad. Um, um, of course, you know, you think about your own mortality, but you think about people think about that from much earlier ages than mine. Yeah. Um, yeah. I you know, know people usually think about mortality when you lose your first pet. Yeah. <laughs> That's when it hits you. Um, then you might lose your you know, grandparents or something. But... Uh, so, yeah, so, um, but these things, I mean, it's part of life, you know, and, and um, you know, we, we had a lot of sadness and Brian Jones died, you know, yeah. a lot of young people died in their 20s, you know, yeah. and um, famous musicians that we admired, you know, Jimi Hendrix, people I love really dearly, yeah. you know, um, died early and, and it's very sad, but there, it's part of life. Can't make this all about death. That's the name of the show. You don't know them? Did no one told you? <laughs> Doctor Death called, will now called, speak. This is called Tom Power on Death. <laughs> <laughs> they, didn't, they didn't know that. It's the depressive part. That's the. I mean, that's all I got, buddy. That's all. Look at, look at me. This, is, this, this beard doesn't come from joyful feelings. <laughs> that's the first part of my conversation with Mick Jagger of the Rolling Stones. Um, as you can tell, they're very grateful to Mick for opening up about the loss of Charlie Watts. We're going to play some new Rolling Stones music later in the show, but what is an interview with Mick Jagger besides an excuse to play some of the greatest rock and roll songs of all time? Let's, uh, let's pay closer attention to the drums in this one than we normally would. From 1978, this is Beast of Burden.
From 1978, that is The Rolling Stones and Beast of Burden. Coming up on cue, more of my conversation with Mick Jagger. I ask him the question, how exactly do you lead a rock band for 60 years? And he has an answer. It's after this on cue. I'm Jesse Cruikshank. Jesse Cruikshank. I host the number one comedy podcast called Phone a Friend. Girl, let's phone a friend. Not only do I break down the biggest stories in pop culture with guests like Dan Levy and members of InSync, I do it with my own personal boy band singing jingles throughout because it's my show. It's your show, girl. New episodes of Phone a Friend. Yeah. Drop Thursdays wherever you get your podcasts. So work it, girl. Yeah, work it. Okay, that's enough. One of the most interesting things about being in the Rolling Stones is we play different styles. Tom Power, you're listening to Q. You're in the middle of my conversation with Mick Jagger of the Rolling Stones. We've been talking about the Stones' first new album in 18 years, what it's like to get in the studio and and write with Keith Richards again, about losing their friend and drummer, Charlie Watts, and about longevity. Like, most bands don't last 60 years. Most bands don't last, like, six months. But for the Rolling Stones to last that long, that's a whole other thing, right? Because the band has had to endure drug addiction, being thrown in jail, the death of bandmates, and just not to mention how much technology and music has changed over the years. I wanted to ask Mick about that. Like, how do you lead a band for that long? And I was happy he had an answer. Here's more of my conversation with Mick Jagger. It's an amazing feat, man, to see this band go on for 60 years. I mean, yeah. and I'd like well, to, to think about everything you just told me, to be honest. We're not going to talk about death, <laughs> but think about losing Brian. Yeah. Think about uh, losing Charlie, but also thinking about the changing of the music industry. You, yeah. know, you and I were talking about the early days, and then you want to talk about uh, vinyls to 8-tracks to tapes yeah. to CDs to streaming to yeah. TikTok to concert tours, meaning so much to concert tours, who knows yeah. what they even mean anymore. Yeah. You're not going to have an answer to this question, but I'm never going to. I'm never going to uh, get a chance to ask it to you. So I'm going to ask it to you anyway. How do you lead a band through all that? By staying abreast of what's going on. What do you mean? Well, you you have to kind of vaguely. I'm not saying I'm slavishly um, trying to you know be at the cutting edge of everything, but you have to understand how things work. You know, in in the current world and that doesn't just apply to the music industry it applies to lots of things i mean you know driving a driving a car is a different experience driving a car in 1960 yeah so and and the record business like all businesses uh it changes a lot i mean the record business being a business of technology never stays the same it never stayed the same ever you know so we when we first started in the record business it was it was about only singles. It was about 45. Pre-album. Yeah. yeah. There were albums by um, pop acts did not sell. What sold was um, 
show albums like South Pacific and Frank Sinatra might sell albums. This kind of this yeah, kind of thing. thing yeah. um, that was the, what sold albums, and then suddenly the Beatles came along and they started selling album pop albums. So it was a huge change. Love, love me do. just about top 40 it was about selling singles that's all there was and of course no money in that uh, you know really and then record companies rather belatedly they wow they because there are millions of vinyl you know of pop artists and suddenly that was a huge change then the cd revolution came along everyone threw away their vinyl and everyone bought CDs of what the vinyl they have. <laughs> so, yeah, and they had eight tracks and we had cassettes. And, uh, and it changed all the time. And then back to vinyl. And then, uh, and and streaming, you know, is like much maligned. But the interesting thing about it is that people of all generations can access music from all periods. Whereas before, if I wanted to buy, you know, an old blues record from 1955, that was really difficult. I had to do mail order. I had to go into a specialist shop, even though I had plenty of money. I used to go and buy it. Now I can just, there it is. It's right there. So what does that mean? Well, that means that, you know, kids of 16 can access anything they want. Now, when I was a young boy, at the age of five, my mother's child gonna be it might also mean that it's a little less special. I think about you guys that when you had to order those chess records. Oh yeah. You had to, your identity was those things because they were so hard to get. Yeah, man. so hard to get, which makes them more desirable in a way because they're, they're, they're so hard to get and I've got one and you don't. Yeah. <laughs> it's just like a collection, you know, of, of rare goods. Isn't that the story of you and Keith? Isn't the story of you and Keith that you had those records? Yeah, we, I had the rare records and yeah. he didn't have the rare records. Where'd you get them? How do you get those rare records? You know, I, I, he probably had some rare records, but you know, it was there was like one or two shops in in London you could buy them, and they were hugely expensive because they were imported and the guy, you know, what I mean, it wasn't yeah. like, and you know, money it was it was expensive, and um, you couldn't buy just as many as you want, and um, to discover, and if you're a musician, you've got to listen to this stuff and get it, and part of your uh, playing ability, listening to these, trying to copy these licks, and how is he going to sing that? What's that song, you know? Uh, Robert Johnson, these things like, well, they're not, like, available, you know? I went to Toronto Fell down on my knees But for all its people complain about streaming everything, I think it's amazing, you know, that I can find things that are really rare yeah. or interesting that I've never heard. But what I find interesting about you is that I know a lot of people, uh, and I'm not going to say names, but I've talked to people who are of your generation in music and some who are still making music, yeah. and a lot of them are sort of mired in nostalgia. And yeah. they'll say to me things like, Tom, it was never as good as it was back in there. Or like, I'm not even going to put my stuff on, I'm not even going to put my stuff on <laughs> Spotify. Or, you know, they get, they get uh, sort of uh, fortified in yeah. an era, but you never seem to do that. Well, no, but you don't want to do that. That's ridiculous. Because you're available on everything, you know. You want to buy a, a vinyl Rolling Stones record, you can buy one if you want to but buy But not just format, kind of everything. Like yeah, the Rolling Stones are never, you never allow them to be fortified in like a retro thing. Yeah. 
No, That's no. important. I don't want it to be in a retro thing. And uh, this album, the, the, the Hackney Diamonds album, I mean, when I talked to Andy, I mean, Andy's like a pop producer. That's where he's made his name, you know. And I was going, Andy, you know, I made all this pop record. But I mean, he loves rock and roll, knows all the history backwards, you know, can play all the licks, can play all the Rolling Stones licks himself, yeah. you know. It's so pretty impressive. But I said, Andy, I want it to be true to the school, you know. I want it to be like a Rolling Stones record, but... But, it, but it's got sound like it was recorded this year. You know, the, the sonic levels of, and the, the way it sounds has got to sound like now. We don't want it to sound like 40 years ago. And of course it doesn't. It sounds like now. The clarity of it, you know, and the fidelity of it. And if you listen to it, compare it to an old Rolling Stones record, it's very, very different. Very, very, very different. Yeah. But still has that heart of the it's music. Still, but it still has all the things of the Rolling Stones. Yeah. Plus, I think people are wrong about you guys. I think people think, call you a great, the greatest rock and roll band and, you know, whatever. And I know that was just a thing someone oh, said on stage. Yeah. But you've never just been a rock and roll band. No, not at all. No. It's not, it, 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 the Rolling Stones, one of the most interesting things about being in the Rolling Stones is we talked earlier before we started recording about um, the chieftains yeah, and Irish playing Irish mu- music. Yeah. You know, the Rolling Stones can play that music if we want, we can play it. And and uh, we do. We play different styles, you know. We, we And we go, of course, there's fashions and styles. And Keith and I went through a whole period where we were listening to the incredible string band and we got very influenced by this kind of music, you know. My sweet Lady Jane When I see you again your servant of I and will humbly remain. Keith and I were very in, into folk music, border ballads, you know. Um, you know, I would go to Ireland and I'd sing, you know, I would sing, you know, Handsome Molly, mm-hmm. you know, at, at, after dinner you're asked to sing something just on your own. Yeah. I would sing Handsome Molly or I yeah. would sing, you know, um, Matty Groves or oh, something yeah. like that, you know. While sailing around the ocean, while sailing around the sea, I dream of handsome Molly wherever she might be. And and Keith and I were 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 really into it, and and that's all part of our, you know, folk music, country music, American country music, blues. For me, you know, I like dance music. You know, I, I like dancing, so I you know I like dance music. I mean, I can only listen to techno for like an hour, but that's my max, you yeah. know, in a club. But I, but I mean, I like all kinds of music, and I'm, you know, I listen to lots, lots of African music, mm. old and new, you know. So I, I, as far as I'm concerned, and the Rolling Stones, we can play anything. Yeah, and you can hear that on this record, and I, I loved it. And we got to, I, I'm getting the boot, but I tell you, man, I love the record. Thank you. Uh, I hope it's not the last one. No, it's not. We were two thirds uh, through the next one. So shall I see you again in a couple of years? Yeah, yeah, right. Hopefully. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks very much, Tom. Listen, I, uh, you'll last. I might not. That's oh, the yeah, thing. I hope so. <laughs> Thanks very much. Thanks, Mick. I appreciate it. Thank you. God love you. My conversation, I'll say it again, my conversation with Mick Jagger. The new Rolling Stones album, Hackney Diamonds, will be out everywhere on October 20th. Glad I got to sneak in there at the end that there's another one after that. Little scoop there, pretty good. Uh, From that brand new album, this is the Rolling Stones and their new single, This Is Angry.
What a joy it was to get a chance to talk to Mick Jagger. Um, uh, I still can't believe that happened. Before we go, I just want to play you one more thing. Yeah, this is great, man. We just flew in yesterday. We just got in from Canada yesterday afternoon. Yeah, from Toronto? Toronto. I'm from Newfoundland. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've never been there. Oh, it's great, man. You know, it's good, you know? Yeah. What you're hearing right there uh, is what you typically don't get to hear on the radio or, or on a podcast. That's me and Mick Jagger chatting, meeting one another right before we started our interview in London. I love hearing back that he said, I've never been to Newfoundland. And I said, oh, it's great. <laughs> It's a moment where we get to kind of connect with the guests and talk about anything we might have in common. And I ended up asking him a little bit about this uh, recording he did in the early 90s with the great Irish band The Chieftains. They did a version of a, a song called The Long Black Veil. Just take a listen. She walks these hills in a long black veil. She visits my grave. So... These are the moments you kind of warm up and you kind of have a chat about, again, what you might have in common. And for us, it was a great love of the Chieftains, in particular, their leader, uh, the late Patty Maloney. Take a listen to Mick talking a little bit about that. I used to see them in Ireland quite a lot. Oh, and, they're um, amazing. And, uh, and, you know, I played with Patty a lot. And, uh, yeah, I used to sort of just play around, you know, like after dinner, I'd play guitar and he would play. He was a brilliant um, you know, pipe player. Well, that's what I was doing. I was playing guitar. Yeah, yeah. It's cool, man, to play music. We were playing with him, and he would just go off on these yeah. reveries of the. And I, and then sometimes we, I, you know, you'd be outside on a nice day, and he'd just get, he'd, he'd just get the whistle out, and and. Play this, and it was very evocative. You know, yeah. being in the country in Ireland, and this and this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was very, very. Yeah, old, you know. And it was beautiful, I remember, because they had that sort of, like, minor whistle thing happening, and you were doing the Lefty Frizzell over it. And yeah. That yeah, was gorgeous. I really loved yeah. that. I loved that recording. I yeah, yeah, thank you. Yeah, it's a beautiful That one. was fun. That's what we're going to talk about today, but Okay, yeah. well, we'll talk yeah, about yeah, that. Yeah, we'll talk about that. Very obscure <laughs> corner of uh, you got 25 minutes my, with them. my musical. I'm going to talk about my, one song. My musical <laughs> history. An eternity nears, and she stands in the crowd. Shit's not a All right, that is it uh, for the show today. Really interesting, I, I got to tell you, to get to talk to Mick Jagger. I got to see them at the Indianapolis Speedway in Indianapolis, Indiana. My uncle took our family to see him, and it was, oh, man, it was unbelievable. I'll never forget that experience as long as I live. But still, like getting, to, I, I thought I was pretty chill. I thought I was going to be pretty, I was so prepared. I did so much research, and then when he sits down in front of you, you're just like, well, there he is. That's that's fully Mick Jagger, and it takes you a couple of minutes to get your head straight. Thanks so much uh, to Mick Jagger. Thanks so much uh, um, to everyone who made that interview possible. Uh, if you want to share that with your friends, I would love if you could do that and get it out to the Rolling Stones fan in your life. Uh, Q with Tom Power, this podcast, wherever you get your podcast, share it along. If you have any questions about what Mick was like, drop me a line uh, on Instagram. I'm at Tom Joe Power. We'll see you soon. Later on. Nobody knows but me. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.